Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, and welcome to our next episode of Decoding AQ. I have with me uh, Eric Kershat, who lives in Chicago, uh, to share some of his amazing insights, but also some of his beliefs, which we're going to get into in a little bit of time. So welcome, Eric. Thank you, Ross. It's good to, good to be with you today. So as I read through and we had our first conversations of things, there's a lot of, you know, challenges and things that HR people have faced and you faced many of them throughout your career and opportunities. And you've shifted now into being, you know, as you describe a disc nerd, but a connection coach and many other things you organize a network and community and I want to start us back, Eric, in terms of your degree. And you had a, mm-hmm. your original degree was in psychology and philosophy. And just tell us, you know, uh, what led you into that? Why? And a bit of the, the sort of origin story of, of Eric at that stage. I uh, appreciate that. I can already tell you've done your homework. <laughs> I, um, I've always been a thinker. And I've always been on the introspective side. Um, I'm I'm somewhat introverted. And by the time I got to college, I had already done quite a bit of thinking. But when it came time to declare a major, I was I was uniquely drawn to psychology. I think because I've always been fascinated by how people behave and why we make decisions and why we gravitate toward and away from different relationships and um, how we develop inner monologues that either work for or against us. And, you know, psychology just seemed like if I was going to spend any time in school taking classes, you know, when I would rather be out and about maybe doing some other things at times, I thought, you know what, psychology is what I wanted to be studying. But of course, that wasn't enough thinking for me. I had to throw in a philosophy minor (laughs) just to just to round out the experience a bit. And that took me in a a different direction in some ways. But those together, um, I think, really spoke to who I was, what I was looking to learn about myself and other people, and and hopefully set the stage for what I might do professionally. And that shift, you know, that all of us make that goes from the learning and the academic, wherever we, you know, decide to hop off that train and hop on the train of work and decide, where do we start our careers? You know, what, what's our endeavors? Some of us are still figuring it out. <laughs> Others knew early on what they wanted to do and what they want to be. And you went uh, into HR uh, after that, didn't you? And working at uh, a company I know reasonably well, probably not as well as you, but the Compass Group. Um, for those of you who might not be aware, the Compass Group is a, it's a UK-based uh, business and they're a, they're a whopper. You know, they're a 20 billion plus revenue business, about half a million employees across so many different divisions. And um, in my previous life, uh, Eric, I worked with the Compass Group on a variety of projects um, and things on rebranding uh, a number of their divisions uh, and things. So you were there in uh, Levy or Livy, but the restaurant's arm and we, were you there maybe 15 years, something like that? Yeah, 15 or 16 years total. Yeah, mm-hmm. wow. And I guess in an organization of that size, 
such a variety of experiences that you will have had, but perhaps just share um, the early beginnings and a few stories of some highlights of that journey for you and what the organization no doubt went through many transformations and change and how that affected your thinking as a thinker um, and also your sort of behaviors and the way you've connected with people and your relationships. So if you can weave in a bit of that story of your journey through Levy and your thinking and relationships of how it's evolved to you now. I'm happy to. And I know you know a thing or two about adaptability. So this <laughs> this story has that um, through and through. Um, when I moved to Chicago following college, I, I just I needed a job. I had an apartment and I was paying rent on that apartment and utility bills. And I actually fell into HR, which actually I've learned if you talk to a lot of HR folks, talent acquisition included, you'll find that people fall into it, even training, learning and development, talent development to a certain extent. And I started as um, I got uh, the HR role with Levy Restaurants um, as a temp job. And because I'm sort of wired this way, I stayed for 16 years. And um, previous to it, really didn't know too much about human resources at all, you know, which is kind of surprising coming out of school with a psychology degree, but just HR wasn't something that I had studied per se. And so I was figuring it out on a on a day-to-day -day basis, but I knew that my experience in, in human resources with Levy restaurants in particular was going to be a special one. And not just because the perks of working in sports and entertainment are fantastic <laughs> and in the food service business. That alone, of course, was exciting. But I recognized early on that I was working in or for an organization that valued human resources. And colleagues of mine and other companies were telling me stories about HR being more policy driven and, you know, just the, the nuts and bolts and things and getting into the minutia of the people aspect of the business. But um, I felt that I was working for an organization that saw that HR could be more than that, more of a more of a strategic business partner where HR could speak the language of finance and the legal department and understand a profit and loss statement and use all of that information then to get business done through people. And I, I strongly believe that any business is really the business of people. It doesn't matter what widget you're selling or what service that you really are in a business of people. And um, as you can imagine, much changed over my 16 years with Levy Restaurants. When I left, it was a billion dollar company. And I think now it, it might be two or two and a half billion in revenue. But I really learned about about myself and about others that meaningful work is possible. And it's up to each of us, I think, to define what that looks like and how we engage with the work that we do. But um, I will forever be grateful to have learned about the discipline of human resources through the, the lens of Levy Restaurants and Compass Group. And I think that's a great way that we can all choose how to look at our experiences. You know, because I'm sure there was challenging times, some times where it wasn't great, but we choose to remember and think the stories that we tell ourselves. Sometimes it might be hard to find a good story. Sometimes it might be easy. But I, I think in it, it comes to a point similar with my own experience as well, actually, Eric. I worked for a publishing company when I came out of college, and it was a real gift because the people who were there just the relationships I built 
were amazing, some of which I've still got today. And when we go to work, it's not just to do tasks. You know, it's not just to create a value or an output, you know, and old school HR or HR in a bad way was, well, that was where the naughty boy or girl's room went when things weren't going right, <laughs> rather than a strategic lever of growth. And I, I want to touch on, and you mentioned it, you know, this possibility of meaningful and fulfilling work. Yeah. And you share that as one of your beliefs. And yeah. uh, it's one of the things I really loved, actually, when I was doing some homework and research is <laughs> what I what when I read it, I thought of, OK, so this guy hasn't got, say, 10 commandments that he lives by. He's got 10 beliefs that he shared uh, on LinkedIn. And I'd love to just dive into a few of those beliefs, Eric, and why you believe them and also what advantage it is to believe those things. So the first one you mentioned, you know, the belief of the possibility of meaningful and fulfilling work. The next one that, that you've got there is that workplace communication can be productive, collaborative and respectful. So as a belief with that, just highlight a little bit more of why you believe that. Is it a hope? Is it a reality? Is it a desire, an aspiration? Maybe all of the above, but tell me a bit more about that. I think we all have experience being in the opposite situation where you're you're saying everything that sounds good in your head and it's it's being perceived as anything but how you intend for it to. And there could be any number of, of things, any number of reasons for that, but um, you know, and it could be as big as the culture of an organization, that the culture is just fairly toxic and unhealthy to begin with. And it doesn't matter what you put out into the world, it's never going to be perceived in the way, <laughs> the way that you want it to and be taken as productively as it could otherwise. But along my journey with Levy Restaurants, when I started working with the DISC assessment in particular, um, sort of as a common language for this, um, but even DISC aside, you know, when you, when you have the experience of speaking and being heard, you know, connecting, truly connecting meaningfully and productively with, with colleagues and stakeholders inside and outside the company, um, it changes things. It, it changes how your work feels. It changes how your relationships feel. It changes how, how productive and effective and influential you feel that you can be. Um, you know, and I learned along the way that it, it can't be taken for granted that, that effective communication, although I believe it is possible, isn't something that um, you're going to wake up one day and just decide. You know, I think it's a, um, I forget the, the quote who, um, mentioned this and it'll it'll come to me but someone said along the way that the something along the lines of the the greatest mistake in communication is assuming that it has taken place you know that what you've said <laughs> has been perceived or heard in in some meaningful way but i think when we are intentional um about that connection and we want very badly to connect meaningfully and productively with other and we put in the time and the effort and it, it that it is possible and it changes everything yeah. And I guess that thought of a belief that, you know, workplace communication can be productive, it can be collaborative, it can be respectful. I'm curious, uh, Eric, in terms of the mechanics that sit underneath that of effective, you know, productive workplace communication evolves because it's contextual, right? You can, as you, the great quote, you know, uh, just because it took place, assuming that actually real communication happened is, you know, probably a very familiar observation for people. We can talk, are we heard? Do we understand? 
I want to dig into, do you think the playbook is slightly different now in terms of achieving that communication, productivity and collaboration with a workforces that are being more disconnected by having to work remotely and less physical sense of each other? Do you think that there is unique opportunities there? How do you see it? What are some of the challenges? And maybe if you've got any, some observations or tips on how we might be able to get to that area of really effective communication in a remote world, because I'm still yeah. trying to figure it out. Yeah. My head is swimming with thoughts, but the thing I think of immediately is I'm working right now in a conference session that I'm titling, you are on mute, why you're not being heard and what to do about it. You and are on mute, why you are not heard and what to do about it. I like and I, uh, yeah. I think that this is something that probably a number of your viewers and listeners can identify with is the experience over the course of the past year of jumping on a, a conversation like this, turning on Zoom or Teams or whatever your platform of choices and getting 10 or 15 seconds into your spiel and people start flailing about, you know, making gestures that you're on mute, you know, and somebody will say you're on mute. And then so we hit the unmute button so that we can be heard and then we start talking and we assume that whatever we say is being heard and is landing with other people and the argument that i'm making is just because you're taking yourself off of mute you've hit some sort of magical button that leads you to believe that you're being heard it doesn't necessarily mean that you are if you're not taking into account differences in communication and personality style and i think um over the course of the last year plus being pulled away from face-to-face -face communication. You know, it's said that up to 93% of the meaning of what we say comes through in nonverbal communication. 7% or so are the words that you use. And then the vast majority is how you use those words and body language and that sort of thing. So when you're not then face-to-face -face with somebody, you start chipping away at that percentage. Right. You know, if you don't turn on your video, you know, which is perfectly reasonable these days, you might not want your video on. Now I've lost all much of that nonverbal communication. I can only pick up tone of voice. We may as well be on a phone call. Well, that then also limits my ability to connect meaningfully with you. And so I think what we've had to struggle with is, OK, as we chip away at that percentage of how much of what we're saying is actually being picked up by somebody else how much more careful do we have to be about our words, how we use them, and how we use them between individuals and groups. If I'm having a conversation with you, Ross, you know, I may choose certain words that I know are going to resonate with you. And then, you know, uh, get your business partner on the phone and I'm talking with Mike or, you know, we're on Zoom together. I may, based on what I know of him, I may choose different words. Now that those sort of techniques are, are certainly um important and valuable when we're face to face but i think as soon as we go virtual we can't help but have to be that much more intentional about how we are connecting with other people and i guess that's part of our adaptive intelligence right to be able to adapt to the outcome we're looking to achieve and if it's to be heard then we need to speak the language and the language isn't just you know, the words, it's all of these other things. It's interesting you say that because my wife can always recognize when I'm on the phone to certain individuals and people. She says, oh, were you on the phone with your nan then? You know, because my accent shifts, 
you know i become oh, really? more northern when i speak to my <laughs> nan you know and all of these just subtle differences that you don't know you're doing and yeah. part of that is respectful part of it's to be effective but then being as you said intentional about it and deliberate needs to be turned up the dial when we haven't got these other indicators um that are coming in so i i i think that's very valuable and uh, I hope people let that sink in. The next Can belief. I, do yeah. you mind if I add something about yeah, that? And I don't, want, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but just because adaptability is certainly your language, that really was my introduction to being adaptable is when I started working with this personality assessment in particular and facilitating conversations around it. And I came at it being introspective and introverted thinking, oh, what I learn about myself and what I learn about Ross in itself will be valuable to me. You know, uh, to, to become more self-aware, to become more aware of others, to be more respectful of diverse communication styles, that alone is valuable. And it is. But it's it's a third piece, I think, that really ends up being the most valuable, and it's the adapting piece. If I understand myself, and then I understand that you have different needs and priorities and tendencies, but I'm not making the effort to adapt to you in order to communicate respect, I've completely missed my greatest opportunity to connect meaningfully and communicate productively with you. And so as much as I may appreciate and value showing up with newfound information about what makes me tick or what makes you tick, it's not until that adapt, ad, adapt, adaptivity piece, adaption, <laughs> whatever yeah, the right word adaptation. is. That is adaptation, that. thank you. Mm -hmm. That that piece is brought into the mix. I think that really you've, you're making the most of the, the knowledge that you've gained about yourself and others. And I guess it's that interplay between two components, you with another person, you with as a team with other teams, you as an organization with your audience, your organization yeah. within your industry, each of these things that which side is adapting to whom, why, when, what's the advantage? So it might be that, hey, catching this person in the mornings and they like bullet points or they like to have the information beforehand so they can do some thinking and planning or someone else loves the jazz off the cuff. All of these things of styles of communication are helpful when we know. When we don't know, then we're just stabbing in the dark and we'll get a symptom of we've pissed someone off or they've given us an applause uh, and they've written us a check or they've come back for more. All of those things, it's kind of sometimes a bit too late. You know, oh, we were misunderstood or we missed that opportunity with the market um, because we didn't adapt the proposition, the communication, the style, uh, the way we did things. So it is, and I'm glad you, you dug in deeper there because it is so, so valuable. And a lot of these tools, you know, all of these various metrics, insights, they give you some metrics, but we still need to apply meaning to that. And we still need to then leverage it. And uh, it leads me a little bit to your next belief in your list, because I was so fascinated. I couldn't wait to dig into some of these <laughs> things. I thought, oh, to, you know, uh, I'm going to adapt from my normal flow. I'm going in here. <laughs> the, the next one is that this belief that each one of us is capable of leading, managing and contributing with greater influence. So I think that really resonates with me as this permission about our future selves and how we might be able to show up in the world and that we have this capability rather than sorry you're this type you'll never be a leader or you're this type 
you'll never have influence that it speaks to me about these things as being something we can craft something we can mold a muscle that we can build around leading managing having influence so tell me more about how you came to that belief and what's the power of having that belief as well eric i think the biggest surprise in this belief is that eric hershott has not always been this optimistic <laughs> i've been known to be skeptical pessimistic realistic you know well i use whatever word that you want, but suddenly, you know, as I'm doing more work with people and with teams and helping them um, define and pursue meaningful work, see potential in themselves, I came to realize that that leadership is so much bigger than I had originally thought. That I, you know, I think many of us think that leadership is a title, perhaps, or certain social status. You know, and you're not a leader until somebody calls you, like dubs you a <laughs> leader. And uh, what I realized is that each one of us is leading in our own way and has the ability to be so much more influential in how we lead, manage, and contribute. If you don't like the word leader, that's fine. You know, maybe contributor is something that resonates with you or manager, maybe you're focused more on performance. You know, but I started to spend a lot of time, especially with HR folks who were showing up for some of the networking events that I was hosting and they were, their title was assistant or coordinator, but we were still talking this language of leadership, that even at that level, you're perfectly capable of, of setting a vision, aligning people with that vision and executing on it. You know, and that's the, sort of in DISC terms anyway, that's the work of leaders. Well, certainly that's being done at the highest levels of an organization, but someone with an assistant or coordinator title can easily still be doing those same things. And so I came along this skeptical, <laughs> pessimistic HR professional, and I wanted suddenly to have this conversation about how we are capable of doing these things and, and really growing our influence in the workplace in ways that we'd not previously considered. I think it is this opportunity to redefine the meaning of various things, you know, and I know brands along the years have, have tried to help us believe certain things, to see certain things behind the curtains of what a brand might represent or what they might stand for. And if we think of the brand that leadership holds, we often think of title and position rather than behavior and thought. And it made me think, as you were talking there about a uh, book, I'm not sure if you've come across Keith Ferrazzi's work, but his, his latest book called Leading Without Authority is a really interesting juxtaposition and, and play on this whole thought of how it can break down a lot of silos and collaborations where, you know, this power and term that he's coined of co-elevation that yes, we can lead ourselves, but inspiring others and influencing others. And we don't necessarily need that title or the authority to do so. It's a behavior that comes out. And uh, I think that speaks a lot to what, what you were talking about as well. And the next piece I want to uh, dive into, and I'd like to do this in a slightly different uh, way. And you have mentioned a couple of times in our conversation about um, you being an introvert. And there's a lot of, you know, talk in people, HR, all of this world between introverts and extroverts, what it means, what it doesn't mean, what doors get closed, what doors get opened, what the realms of possibility are. And, you know, you believe that introverts 
underestimate their ability to network professionally. And I'm just fascinated by that, you know, almost oxymoron and play on the brand of what an introvert and extrovert and networking is. Oh, no, the brand of networking, it needs extroverts versus your thoughts. So I wanted to uncover that. And I wonder if we could uncover it through a story or through an experience that you might have, have had to build in why you think introverts might be underestimating their abilities to network professionally. Yes, and thank you. I, I love this topic. So, um, and sort of what, one thing we've been dancing around, and I will introduce it here, is this idea of the imposter syndrome, especially when it comes to professional networking and introverts. And I can't speak for all introverts. I can only speak from my own perspective, but I have a session called Network Like an Introvert because it, you know, it's something that is really important to me to, to inspire fellow introverts to believe that um, they're capable of more. You can tell that this is a common thread in a lot of what I've been talking about. And by the way, one of my favorite memes is something like introverts unite just separately and in your own homes, <laughs> which is exactly what the past year plus has been introverts uniting separately and in our own homes. And, you know, it's, it's a comfort area for me. I, I much certainly would prefer there not to have been a pandemic, but in terms of my social calendar and, um, you know, the, the, demands for my time to to interact face to face with people the past year plus has been a little bit more comfortable for me personally when i was leaving the the corporate world and starting my own business i realized that networking was something that i was going to have to do and i say have to as opposed to like get to do because as somebody who's on the introverted side myself the last thing that i ever wanted to do to spend any amount of time was to be at an event with countless people that I didn't know and didn't really have an interest, a vested interest in coming to know. But suddenly that's how I was going to be building my business and reputation was by networking and, and building a network. And early on, and to a certain extent, even still today, depending on the networking event, the first 10 or 15 seconds, maybe 30 seconds of my experience there is planning my escape route. Like if I need to get out of here in a heartbeat, <laughs> If I'm in a conversation that just is no fun, where I'm not getting getting anything out of it, rather than how do I make this fun and enjoyable, how do I escape? Well, that's not the mindset that I wanted to have. And so I, I, I sat with it for a bit and I said, okay, what is my issue here? Why is it that I'm coming in with this sort of imposter syndrome thinking, well, who am I to network? Like, this isn't something that comes naturally to me. I don't bring any strengths to it. What I realized is that I was judging my ability to network based on what I had seen extroverted folks do. That person who comes in and thrives on the energy and seems comfortable in the spotlight and in the center stage and is so witty and, and talkative. And I thought, I'm not that person. And if that person appears to be networking the way networking is supposed to be done, I'm never going to do that. And initially then that that kept me from doing it. The aha moment for me was recognizing that I don't have to do it like that person that I need in whether I'm an introvert or an extrovert, because the table certainly can be flipped or any other personality entirely. The extent to which I am able to do it in a way that is uniquely rewarding and fulfilling to me makes it into something that I want to do. But if I'm doing it for somebody else's reasons and in somebody else's way, I'm never going to get to the point that it becomes a rewarding, fulfilling experience for me. 
that that's really helpful in the way that you framed it there, Eric. And I think it comes to a number of personal frustrations I have with things like labeling. You know, when we, you know, we often as a whole society and the way we structure work is to label things, to put things with a title, with a box, have a list of descriptions on the role of what you can or can't do in the responsibilities and, you know, have the paths and the various things. And it was this governance was often a limiting factor rather than an opportunity to build from. And it comes back to this interpretation of, oh, networking equals, you know, X. Whereas if you think about the label of, oh, an introvert doing networking, what X might be Y. Networking mm -hmm. equals Y in an introvert's world. Not that networking with an introvert equals zero. Nothing, can't do it. It's just the way or how or to define it of something that's different. And for many, as you've said, and a, a great, you know, uh, you know, introverts unite just independently in their own spaces is exactly that way of thinking is that we can give permission to do something differently, to find the reward in the root and how. And it's why in our view, when we look at a key component of adaptability is character, you know, and it's looking at who adapts and why, not whether they can or can't, not a capability, but an approach, a way in which if when we understand that, we can work in harmony and flow. And I guess that's similar of what you've just been describing is to create our environment, our network environment in which insert label can thrive. Um, and, and I think that is such an empowering belief and one that's going to take a heck of a lot of work to, you know, pick away at because it's been so rife in our whole makeup and society of labeling and titles and what is possible, whether that is a personality trait, a particular race, a color, a gender, you know, all of these things that we label ourselves of what we may or may not do, rather than figuring out what's my future self? What do I want to look like? And then how do I evolve my unique blend of me into what that could be? And so, mm -hmm. yeah, thank you for that. The, the, the next one that I'd uh, like to just touch on is in and around the, the belief that job seekers benefit from, as you've put it, regaining confidence and control in their search. Tell me a little bit more about that, Eric, and what, where that stemmed from, and um, so I can understand that piece a bit better. You know, so I, I realized along the way that I had a heart for helping people define and pursue meaningful work. And so I, I spent time in that area, quite often volunteering as a volunteer for an organization or a community of, of coaches helping people um, define and pursue meaningful work. And um, I think the job search can be exciting, but I, I, I saw firsthand I've never been in an extensive job search myself. You know, I've been fairly fortunate coming out of school, getting a temp job, staying in the same place for 16 years, yeah. <laughs> and then transitioning into my own business that I haven't been in an extensive. So I wanted to put that out there right off the bat, but I've spent a lot of time with people who are in extended job searches. And it is just 
they get pounded down by it. I mean, it's just it you really take a hit, your confidence takes a hit, your energy level, you know, submitting resume after resume. And um, I wanted to I wanted to have a voice in that conversation. I wanted to come in as the third party outsider to say, look, you know, this comes down to your pursuit of meaningful work and you have to define that for yourself. And if, if it's just about getting a paycheck, there are any number of places you can walk into, get a job and trade your time for money and get a paycheck. You know, but if you're really looking for something rewarding, uniquely rewarding and meaningful, there's a way that we can go about this that that makes things easier for you and makes things exciting and allows you to regain a sense of confidence over the value that you're bringing to this conversation and the progress that you're making. And I think this very much ties in with what we discussed previously, because sometimes being adaptable is simply about adjusting your perspective. Sometimes it's about the practical stuff, right? Okay, if I, you know, if I get overwhelmed by the thought of meeting 10 people at a networking event, I can go in just wanting to meet one, and then I've met my quota. Like that's a practical shift. You know, when it comes to the job search, you know, if, if it's exhausting to submit, you know, 50 resumes in a day, maybe I only have to submit 10 and then adjust my strategy. So there's that those practical shifts that can take place. But also this sense that I can view things differently. You know, if, if I've come in before with this inner monologue telling me that, you know, being an introvert is going to work to my disadvantage, how can I shift my perspective on the strengths that I'm bringing to networking? If I'm in the job search and I have this this sense that, oh, geez, because I've heard no so many times, that means I don't have value. What happens if I shift my perspective and I tell myself a different story, you know, about being that much closer to a yes, or about me being in complete control over the story that I'm telling to begin with? And I don't mean to say that this is a switch that can be flipped overnight, but I think when you recognize that so much of our, so much of life, both personally and professionally, um, is influenced by our perspective on it and that that is something that we are in complete control over i think um, the extent to which we see ourselves as adaptable um, can very much be impacted it makes me think of you know how easy it is to trick our brains you know we can smile genuinely or smile on demand and say oh smile uh, smile and our chemical production and brain and various things will, to a certain extent, have similar responses to those things, whether it was real or not real. And when we come back to what you've just been talking about of regaining confidence and essentially this storytelling and reframing, we can look at reframing and saying, oh, I didn't do 50 uh, job applications that's what I needed to do I only did 10 when I go to bed and our body brain and mind will respond to what you've just told it to a oh when I got up this morning I hadn't done any I've now done 10 wow I've got 10 out there and your body mind energy will shift around your confidence and Building that habit is so important, especially when we're in challenged situations and unknown situations, is that we need to protect our confidence, but not at all times that we become egocentric, arrogant, delusional, that at some points we need to tell ourselves that wasn't good enough. That is a negative story. We need to right. you know, be better. <laughs> but choosing when we're hard on ourselves 
and when we're our best supporters is really, really important. And often you need an outsider for that, right? You sometimes yeah. just need a spouse, a coach, a somebody to help you adjust with when you should be your cheerleader and when you should be your critic. Um, and I think that that balance, again, comes down to this adaptability of our journeys of life that, that we go through. Before I go into the next one, I just wondered if you wanted to add any thoughts to, to that piece. Thank you. Yeah, there are, I can't help but think of any number of quotes um, that sort of reinforce this. And I have a, a handful bouncing around in my head right now. I think it's attributed to Henry Ford saying, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Yeah. Um, Victor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning talks about, you know, we're not often in control of our paraphrasing, of course, we're not often in control of our circumstances, but we are in control of how we view those circumstances and the attitude that we bring. Uh, another one of my favorites is we don't see the world as it is, we see the world as we are. You know, and, and two people can look at the same situation yeah. and one might say, oh, this is really exciting and full of potential. And the other person can say, I just don't know how I'm going to move forward, you know, yeah. and um, the life experiences that are, are brought to that perspective um, really influence it. So those are just a few a few uh, quotes that come to mind that reinforce the sense that there's there is a bit that we are in control of there's a whole bunch that we're not yeah. Stephen Covey used to talk about our circle of concern versus circle of influence something along those yeah. lines there's plenty that I could be concerned about that I have no influence over you know what are the things that I could be concerned about but also be able to influence and my perspective is one of those things I yeah. can choose to influence it is and I I think this, uh, you know, listening to you more and more, I can hear the, you know, beautiful blend of psychology and philosophy coming through. And of course, we're the form of what we spend our time seeking, doing and experiencing. And a bit like you said, fall into HR. You had to be on the road where the whole had HR on it to fall into it. <laughs> Right. I like that. I haven't heard that, that analogy. Yeah. I, I don't know. Just having, you know, when you fall into something, <laughs> Again, that isn't an accident. We might think it is, but we had to be adjacent to the hole. Um, yeah. There are many holes that, that we could fall into, and we might not, through perspective, understand or realize why that hole presented itself to us until we're able to reflect. And this is another thing that uh, leads me to one of my favorite beliefs that you've shared that is a almost a superpower for perspective. And it's your belief that says, I believe in the power of intentional service to others. And to me, that is uh, a superpower for so many things from perspective to meaning to, you know, gratitude to confidence to all sorts of things when we can provide service to another. And um, that the enrichment and fulfillment and chemical releases and all of these things that go on for us it is so, so powerful. And you mentioned yourself, you know, you volunteered because you want to help people find meaningful work, you know, harmony insights as you, you know, this view of finding even harmony, you know, to, mm -hmm. to work in those ways. So tell me a little bit about why you chose that as one of the 10 for you to put in of intentional service to others, Eric. Um, so there are a couple of components to this. Um, one of them, I think, is baked into uh, my own story and evolution. 
I think coming out of Levy restaurants after 16 years into my own business, I was very aware of all of the things that I needed. I needed an income, <laughs> I needed clients, I needed a reputation, I needed a network. And it was so easy for me to show up in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody like you or at a, at a networking event, so keenly aware of those needs. And as you can imagine, that also influenced then how I was perceived and the words that came out of my mouth. You know, I went much too quickly to some of the things that I needed. And so again, another example, I suppose, of then this evolution where it just, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel authentic. It didn't feel genuine. It felt desperate at times. And I just thought, this is not how I want to be perceived. You know, what, what needs to change? Now coming back to perspective, you know, what is, what is it I'm perceiving? I'm perceiving that the spotlight is on me. Well, I'm uncomfortable in the spotlight to begin with. I'm an introvert. I don't want to be in that. So why do I show up to all these conversations needing and, and almost demanding to be served when I can control where that spotlight is pointed? I can point it on you, Ross, and say, hey, you know what? Enough about me. Or maybe I didn't even start talking to begin with. I want to know about you and your work and your organization. You know, you guys are doing some fantastic things in the area of adaptability and in others as well. I want to know about that, you know? So why do I want to know about that? Well, I want to know about it maybe because it gives me a breather. I don't feel like I'm in the spotlight, but I also want to know about it because then, and this is the part two, there is value in being of service to other people. And you're going to have viewers and listeners say, Eric, of course, that's the case. You know, it doesn't take Gary Vaynerchuk coming out with a book, you know, or any number of other people writing these books about first being of service um, before making an ask. But there are those of us that had to learn that, you know, that had to learn it, especially when we find ourselves in situations where we feel kind of desperate. And I had to define then what service meant. And in the beginning, it was showing up and being able to facilitate a disc workshop for you. I was a disc nerd, so that's what I did and that's what I led with. And then I realized that I can be of service in ways that go well beyond disc. That may be a comfort zone for me, but you could have a headache or a challenge today that you articulate to me that I have no idea how to help you with, but I can figure out how to help. And in so doing, endear myself to you and build truly meaningful connection and rapport in ways that I never would have otherwise if I had just blown you off and said, oh, sorry, I don't know what to do about that. And so redefining service, I'm a classical musician. You know, when I'm on stage singing classical choral music, I'm serving my audience in a very particular way. But if I don't see that as service, then I'm just on stage singing, you know? So understanding myself and redefining what service can mean and can look like, you know, that- And it can be, for some people, really little things. And again, it comes back to framing, you know? <laughs> Is singing, oh, I'm just singing or am I serving? And it made me think as you were talking there about when people are right at their lowest, when things have gone wrong, when they're seeking for a job, their confidence has been broken, they're not sure of their identity anymore because their role isn't valuable. And we'll face this at some point in our lives, right? Wherever it is, we'll have a bottom point. It might be different, your bottom point, my bottom point, wherever it is. And at those moments, it's often hard to think about service. It's hard because we might, instead of be full of hope and hopeful, we're feeling hopeless. You know, instead of being in a sense where we've got confidence and we're useful, we feel useless. 
And when we're in those moments of being, you know, useless in our own sense and hopeless in our own sense, what could we serve? What can I even contribute? You know, and giving ourselves this permission that we can all contribute in some way. And it leads me back to the power of when you serve, the activity of it reframing your confidence that you can just help someone else out. Yeah. And it can be just a small little thing. And if we use these at the right moments, that yes, it's powerful when we're at the bottom, but it's also powerful when we're full of hope and feeling really useful and at the top to get us in check. And so these types of things can serve us at both ends of our journeys to be at service, to give us a check-in or to give us a boost up and to be, you know, humane and have humility and those sorts of things. And I want to finish up with a, a question. And I've only just started asking this in uh, interviews and conversations. And I've got this question and then I also want a couple of practical tips that I try and get out. But sure. th this question, Eric, for you is, one of the key components of being adaptable and living our, in my view, our best version of our lives is to remain curious, to always be looking for things that are new, that are changing. And when we're young, we do it a lot because, hey, by virtue, loads of stuff's new. <laughs> loads of stuff mm -hmm. we're doing it for, for the first time. And what I've noticed is as we get drawn into our pattern of what we like, what we don't like, where we see value, what our jobs are, what our roles are, how many times do we do things for the first time? So I want to give you a moment to think about when was the last time you did something for the first time? And what was it? If you can share it. So just take a little moment to think about that. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Eric? Um, so I guess what immediately comes to mind for me is that I have long facilitated conversations face to face brought people together for networking purposes or to to facilitate a workshop and facilitate face-to-face -face learning when we went primarily virtual last march um i had to learn how to incorporate technology into what i do in ways that i hadn't done before and i i enjoy technology like i'm drawn to it sometimes spend a little bit more time trying to figure things out than probably i need to but it is something that that does motivate me so we'll i think that's worth mentioning um but just recently you know i i decided okay well i'm i'm doing this stuff with my um networking event that i have for hr professionals and it would really benefit from some music I have never used music in my <laughs> in my events, but now I feel like I'm in this event production mode because I have all these toys and I'm like the one thing that's missing I can do fancy stuff on zoom with my cameras. Um, but I'm not doing anything with music and I love music, I mean my the name of my company is called harmony insights right and yeah. I, i'm not using music. Um, and because Eric Kershaw has some control issues I can't just hand this over delegate to somebody else to do my. AV, I have to also do AV while I'm facilitating. So that's another conversation. But I thought I really want to figure this out. We can out. work on that together, Eric. We can work on that. <laughs> so it's it's not a substantial story, but this first for me was getting to a point with my facilitation that, you know, having gotten certain pieces of technology and set up software on my computer in certain ways, I was able to welcome people to a recent uh, professional networking event that I run and have 
a playlist of songs that were being pulled in as a, a feed, an audio feed into what I was doing on Zoom. I didn't know how to do that before and I had seen other people do it and I had to spend quite a bit of time on YouTube learning from others. But having learned that and uh, maybe it wasn't as smooth as it could have been, but seeing in the chat that people were really digging the playlist I had put together, there was a sense of accomplishment and achievement and pride and confidence that came along with that that reminded me there is such value in doing things for the first time. <laughs> Very much. Thank you for sharing that. And it it's it encompasses so many things to be vulnerable, to be brave, to figure things out, to learn things, to do things that you hadn't done before. And they can be small. They can be mixing up things in a new way that have existed for you in other environments, but you're using them in, in a different way. All of these things are crucial to a rich life, to a life that's full of opportunity and full of, you know, whilst serendipity, that happy accident, like I said, you know, you have to be on the road with the hole for you to fall into that hole. The same is true on serendipity. You know, you have to go and be curious to have those things show up and present. So you sharing that story for our listeners to think about, okay, maybe there is something that I could do for the first time by taking that and using it over here or doing this. And that again is just the framing we tell ourselves. Oh, that was new. I learned this. Hey, I'm going to give myself a break that it might not be perfect. And I'll look to do it again or decide actually that was so bad. I don't want to do it again and I'll find something else. So thank you for sharing that. And the final bit that I want to uh, touch on was our world is changing so quickly and so rapidly. Um, and this sense of change is requiring adaption at every level from an individual, the beliefs, the thoughts, the mind, some things stay fixed, some things change, teams and organizations. What kind of tips or things that are you, what are you doing in order to deal with all of this level of transformation and change that you're seeing and in and around your networks and bits? tips that are quite practical for people to think about of how they might be able to maybe tomorrow or the next day do something to deal with that kind of pace and change that's uh, you know ever accelerating so what's your thoughts on that Eric? well given the work that i do my my mind immediately goes to personality and communication style mm -hmm. and um I think it all starts with first knowing yourself. And I've worked with a number of people that say, well, here's something kind of fun and, and different and innovative. I'm going to jump into it before recognizing whether or not it's a good fit for them in their current skill set. You know, are there skills that they need to develop that would, uh, you know, help them be more effective in what they're chasing? Um, is it aligned with their values to begin with? You know, yeah, it's an exciting company, but once you get there, are they doing work and producing products and services that that you don't really value yourself you know that's a that's a significant misalignment so you know it's it starts with understanding yourself how you were wired what your preferences and tendencies are what you value um what your comfort zone looks like what it feels like to step outside of that comfort zone um and geez when it comes to being adaptable our relationship with our comfort zone is going to be really important you know, when you're given an opportunity to adapt and it feels uncomfortable, do you shy away from that or are you drawn to it? You know, when there's conflict in your environment, are you drawn to it or do you shy away from it? Knowing yourself, you know, will um, will really inform those decisions. And then part two is 
Um, and that can be done through an assessment or simply with conversations with other people. And then two is then better knowing your environment, better knowing what you're moving toward, better understanding the person that you want to develop the relationship with. Um, really dig in. And if, if, you're, if your end goal is meaningful connection, meaningful communication, and being adaptable um, to things that are moving so quickly, I think the better, under, uh, better you understand yourself, better under, you understand your environment, you know, that's going to be your playbook. Yeah, I think that's so valuable and easy for people to begin with. You know, that can be having, as you said, conversations with other people with really good questions of those things. It's been really insightful. And thank you, Eric, for your time and, and sharing, you know, the stories behind your beliefs and also your journey to today. Um, and I've got every confidence that tomorrow is going to be brighter and better and full of even more excitement and reward. If people want to get in touch with you, Eric, what's the best way that they can get in touch to learn some more? Thank you for asking. I am most active on LinkedIn by far. So I'm, I'm there all the time. So you can find me, Eric Kershot. I'm sure you can find the spelling if there are show notes or here on the video even of yeah. my name, which is a little unique, but E-R-I-C-H. Uh, on LinkedIn, my company is called Harmony Insights and harmonyinsights.com will take you to everything that I do from a, a disc perspective and otherwise. And um, the HR networking community that I've referenced is called HR Hot Seat and we're entirely free and we bring HR professionals together to solve common challenges and, and really connect meaningfully, surprise, surprise, with one another. So you can find out about that at hrhotseat.com. Thanks, Eric. It's really been great to build our relationship and meaning. And I look forward to many conversations, both philosophical and practical, uh, <laughs> on our endeavor to solve the problems that matter and the challenges that people are really facing to give them confidence and hope of their futures. So thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day in, in lovely Chicago. Thanks, Ross. It's been a great conversation. I look forward to our next one. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams and organisations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast directory and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.